Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Wonderful lunch. This is just to remind you of next week's session. It will be, the speaker will be Judith Kalik, a professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Lethbridge. And she will be speaking on preparing for the next disaster, experiences from Slave Lake. So we hope you can join us next week. Okay, now I um, reminded all of you to have your questions ready for Dr. Ian McLaughlin, and I hope you have mulled those over while you were having your lunch. So we'll invite um, Ian back up to the front to answer your questions. Welcome back, Ian. I'll remind you when you go up to the microphone to please state your name and keep your questions on topic. Thanks. Bye. Hi. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm Henning Mundell, and we know each other quite well. <laughs> Ian, um, it was fascinating, I mean, the, the whole development of your presentation. And one thing I cannot help but think, are you actively or potentially consulting with Lethbridge Economic Development, Cheryl Dick and Co. and the city of Lethbridge on how on on these experiences? Thank you for that wonderful uh, question, uh, Henning. Actually, uh, I'm I'm hoping that this is a rehearsal uh, for the talk that I want to give to Economic Development Lethbridge, uh, but I haven't I haven't approached them with that in mind yet. So I'm hoping I can share uh, some of those thoughts and uh, that they might be they might find them useful. So uh, it's on my list, but I haven't gotten there yet. Just before uh, the the next question. I wanted to tell you where I am. Uh, I, I'm, this is Indian, whoops. This is the, the Indian Ocean, of course, the, the west side of Australia. And this is the wreck of the Quinana. This was a, uh, a, a ship that was blown ashore on a stormy night in 1922. Uh, and for years it sat as a full shipwreck. Then they cut it down to water level. They filled up the hull with, with riprap and, 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 and fill, and then they paved the top of it with, with asphalt. So that's the bow of the uh, Quinana up there. And uh, right over my head, this is the single uh, grain handling facility for all of Western Australia. There's no system of country elevators. Uh, Perth is at the center of what's called the wheat belt, and wheat growers bring their grain to tidewater uh, by, uh, by road train with heavy, heavy uh, trailer trucks. And uh, it goes in here and then it goes into bulkers and it's carried to the rest of uh, Asia. So bulk handling of, of grain is one of the important functions that the Quinana complex has. Next question. Uh, I'm Trevor Page and uh, thanks for your, your presentation. I lived in Abadan as a kid. Oh, really? And I visited several special economic zones in China. 
And these are dreadful places to live. I'm just awful. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I've got two questions, one a general one, um, which is, is the effort to make, uh, I've forgotten the name of the place, not Quinoa, but where you have your ship. Quinana. Quinana, not Quinoa. Uh, More habitable. Um, Was that industry-driven or was it government-driven? That's the general question. The specific one is how is, I'm assuming that for the extraction of oil and gas, Western Australia is fracking. And if my assumption is correct, since the the whole world is fracking these days, how is Western Australia, how are Western Australian companies or companies operating in Western Australia disposing of the fracking fluid? Why don't I do the second one first? Uh, the, The simple answer about fracking in Western Australia, I don't know enough about the the technology of of oil, uh, crude oil extraction to comment at all. Much of the oil is being uh, being extracted from an island offshore called Barrow Island. And uh, there are lots of of offshore uh, drilling rigs of of various sizes at at various uh, depths. Uh, But whether they're fracking or not, I have no idea. Now, it's very interesting to learn that, that you have first-hand experience in, uh, in Avedan. Uh, and I, I've got a fascinating paper about, about the development of Avedan as a, as a, uh, a settlement to, to share with you if you're, you're interested. Uh, it was not so bad for the, uh, the British uh, pl- uh, skilled plant workers who were located on the upwind side of Abadan, but it was the, uh, the Iranian uh, Persian workers who were housed on the downwind side of the, uh, the oil refinery at Abadan that, that found the truly grim uh, conditions. So it was a study in the inequality of housing in a colonial uh, system. Now, uh, the Quinana town site uh, is not where all the, the, the rich ocean beachfront amenities are. Uh, the town site is inland, two and a half miles from the industrial area, separated from it by a fossilized uh, sand dune ridge uh, that means that, that the industrial area is not visible from the, uh, the town site. It was planned very carefully with emissions in mind because this is a part of the uh, world where you do have uh, westerlies uh, almost every day uh, for uh, part of the, the day. Uh, it's described as the Fremantle Doctor, uh, and it blows in the uh, cool air uh, towards the end of a, of a very hot day. It also would blow any emissions inland. To make sure that the town site wasn't in the, in the way of the emissions, the, the planner of the day, um, a woman uh, by the name of Margaret Fieldman, one of the uh, hugely accomplished uh, planners of Western Australia, and the first woman to really make her mark as a planner in Western Australia. In fact, in all of Australia, for that matter. Uh, she's uh, well-known. Uh, she took a lot of time studying the subtleties of the topography, uh, the location of the town site relative to the, to the uh, oil refinery, and the rest of it hadn't come along until much later. And just to make sure she had it right, 
they burnt tires on the beach, and nothing makes blacker smoke than tires. And they burnt tires all the way along the beach to figure out uh, where the emissions were going to go when the Fremantle doctor blew in. And they sighted the uh, town away from those things, so that it's not that emissions aren't uh, uh, occasionally an issue, but often they are, they are not an issue even when the westerlies are, are blowing. Are there environmental uh, problems here that are, that are matters of public concern? Absolutely. And in half an hour, I couldn't, I couldn't talk about everything. One of the huge problems comes from alumina refining. Alumina refining makes something called red mud. And it's called red mud no matter where you are in the world. It's an alkaline uh, clay uh, uh, soil residual that is produced in very large quantities. And where are you going to put it? Uh, and, and there are massive stockpiles of the red mud, and you see some of them when you drive into Guanana. So it, it's not environmentally quite as pristine as, as it could be. It, it does face those problems. And the community is grappling with them in, in fora such as this one. But is the effort um, to make it as habitable um, as is viable uh, government-driven or industry-driven, would you say? Well, in as much as the planner was working for the state of, of Western Australia at that time, that was a, a part of the state initiative to, uh, to make sure that the town site was in a, in a place that was as, as, as unaffected or as little affected uh, as possible given the, uh, given the emissions that were going to be a very much a part of that first oil refinery. Uh, Industry has uh, done the air quality testing when they've been asked to. They've put in electrostatic precipitators in many cases. And uh, the electrostatic precipitators, uh, of course, gather in the, the sulfur uh, dioxide. Sulfur dioxide can then be combined with limestone, calcium carbonate, plus the SO4, and you get uh, calcium uh, uh, sulfate. There's the sulfur, but it's in calcium sulfate form. And when you flatten that out and, and, and squeeze it real hard, you get drywall. Uh, so uh, some, of the, um, some of the residuals of, of these processes that might otherwise impose negative externalities on the population can be managed as byproducts that have useful properties and, and uh, products that, that are valuable to consumers. Thank you. Austin Fennell, and thank you for your address. Uh, I wonder if you see some opportunities in southern Alberta that haven't yet been explored. We know that potatoes and sugar and cattle, although there might be room for a new XL plant, but uh, <laughs> I wonder if you've seen some opportunities not yet explored here in southern Alberta. Well, that's where I, I, I talked about opportunities for communication to, to uh, try and, and get over the, the, uh, the problems of, of asymmetries in the flow of information to get people who understand processes and understand what byproducts are available and how they might be used to get them, to get them talking. Um, can I identify any, any examples uh, on my own? You know... At a, very, at a very trivial kind of a scale, there's an awful lot of stuff that gets thrown out by one person that another person could use if only they knew about it. Uh, 
My father-in-law loves getting his hands on old pallets that people are getting rid of, and he does all kinds of odd jobs with, uh, with pallets that might otherwise be discarded. Motor oil, sometimes when you've got a small amount of it uh, and, and no place to put it, uh, it's, it's tempting just to get her down the drain, get her out of the way, and yet motor oil's got all kinds of, uh, of uh, uses when it's recycled in the right kind of a way. So there's a host of uh, very small-scale things that can be done with byproducts if only we've got a system, uh, an exchange of information in which people can, can advertise surpluses and others can take advantage of them. So just as an example, I had all these doggone 2Q boxes in my, uh, in my garage after we unpacked all our stuff after being away for a year. I just wanted to be rid of the boxes. Sorely tempting to put them into those reuse containers at the shopping center. Um, but instead, I put it on uh, Lethbridge Free Cycle, and uh, a lady came over to pick it up within, uh, within hours. And then I learned that, in fact, she was the wife of a graduate student who I would be examining uh, the next week, who's now moving to Saskatoon from the University of Lethbridge. So, you know, I, I, I knew of her. I knew about her kids because her husband had been telling me all about her and, and the children. So, you know, these, these, these fits are there. These complementarities are available if only the hand and the glove can find each other. And... Uh, that's the, the kind of communication that I think could be enhanced. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Ian, thanks for your very interesting presentation. I know it was a little bit short uh, on time, of course. It was a big subject. Uh, you mentioned Kitimat in your talk, and uh, Western Canada doesn't really have a easy outlet for exports. Uh, do you think Kitimat uh, uh, is likely to become an industrial processing community? Or any other community on the West Coast, for that matter? That's a, a very interesting uh, question, Knut. Uh, Kitimat was a, a, a project famously planned by, by Clarence Perry, uh, sorry, Clarence Stein, in, in, uh, who, who did some of his early work in New Jersey using concepts that were pioneered by Clarence Perry, also in the United States, using the uh, neighborhood concept. And interestingly, some of those same planning principles that were being used in Kitimat were also being used two and a half miles inland from here in the, in the town site at, uh, at Quinana. There was uh, great hope held out and great optimism expressed for two ports on the uh, west coast of, uh, of British Columbia. One was Kitimat, and the other was Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert was, was planned to have a population, I think they were aiming at 100,000, and uh, they're not much over 10, I don't think. Uh, so there's... There's terrific potential left in Prince Rupert, some of which has been realized in, in, in recent years, and uh, more potential there. Kitimat is getting way up there. Uh, it's ideally situated for big uh, hydroelectric power users, but uh, whether or not uh, that location would be valued as a port for other kinds of uh, resources, I think that's got to wait until the right kind of resource becomes available. 
And then, of course, uh, unlike Coburn Sound, which is a walk in the park to uh, get a big ship into, Kitimat poses enormous navigational challenges uh, and, and the potential for catastrophic accidents because uh, it is, uh, it's such a treacherous, tortuous uh, sea lane to uh, get ships into it. My name is Ron Renwick, and thank you for your presentation. And I note that uh, you mentioned uh, some of the large-scale resource markets were to China, and I'm wondering if they own anything in Western Australia, any of the companies, and I'm further wondering if we should sell Nexon oil to them. <laughs> I'm afraid uh, I was only in Western Australia for a year, and uh, that's one of the many things that uh, I don't have information on at the tip of my uh, tongue. I know that... Uh, uh, Australia is is very high on the uh, shopping list for for resource consumers in China. There's a the, the relationships between the two are are, are getting stronger. Uh, when you go into uh, Fremantle Harbour, which is just uh, 30 kilometers north of of the uh, Coburn Harbour here, the the, 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 the Container Harbour, you see the Japanese vessels coming in all the time and the Japanese crews. Uh, Sorry, Chinese. Uh, well, there's some Japanese vessels too, uh, but but Chinese uh, vessels. There's there's lots of of trade going on, but what kind of ownership there is of um, of Australian resource holdings, I'm not aware of. And as for Nexon, well, this is a huge policy debate that Canadians are going to be uh, are going to be wrestling with, and and there, there's nothing more. Uh, uh, political in Canada than the appropriate role of the state in regulating investment in a free market capitalist economy. And so uh, Canadians will be wrestling with that and it's going to be very interesting to, to weigh the arguments and, uh, and see what the outcome will be. Thank you very much, Professor. My name is Frank Toth. Uh, while you're speaking about the tremendous amount of labor being used to extricate the stuff out of the ground, using a word familiar to the old Premier Klein, what's the relative relative benefit for Australia in in terms of royalties that their the Iranian oil Anglo American is is tearing out of the ground. Have they got a uh, Have they got a royalty system? We had we had a minister here with five portfolios last night, and he couldn't answer why we're only getting two percent royalties here in Alberta. How's there? Have they got a royalty situation there at all for the country, not just labor? We share so much in common uh, as Canadians with Australia, a common uh, colonial heritage. Uh, we, we become uh, states at, at just about the same time. They speak of federation. We talk about confederation. Uh, and, uh, of course, the United States is so important to Canada as our neighbor and largest trading partner. The United States has become so important to Australia 
Australia was, uh, of course, uh, uh, had, had intense ties with Britain. But with the fall of Singapore, Australians uh, turned to Britain for help, and Britain was, was engaged with other things at the time of the fall of Singapore. So that created a, a sense, a, a deep sense of uh, the necessity of maintaining important relationships with the United States because when push came to shove, the United States was, was so important to, um, to Australia during World War II. Uh, among the, the things that we share with Australia is our uh, dependence on crude and semi-processed resource exports. The manufacturing sector was something that was fostered to some degree in Canada under the, the national policy and import substitution policies that, that Australia still has, and they're still building holdings in Australia. But it's, uh, like Canada, terribly dependent on, on natural resources as a source of foreign exchange for all of the things that, that they don't uh, produce in Australia. One would think that an enlightened uh, resource policy would see uh, royalties being charged at a rate that the market will bear and uh, at a rate that we'll see the uh, future uh, availability of those resources will be sustainable on into the, uh, on into the future. It's a real trick to uh, come up with exactly the right uh, level of uh, royalty that won't drive consumers to other sources of, uh, of resources and that will provide for the foreign exchange and, and uh, commodity needs that both Australians have and, and Canadians have. Exactly how we set those resource uh, royalties, that's a, that's a challenge that I leave to the uh, to the resource economists and the um, international uh, financier experts, and I'm not sure that I can I can add much in the way of, of advice. A, do they have a royalty system? Absolutely. You, what terms of our percentage? What does it look like? I don't know. Oh, okay. We've asked every politician, every political leader in this place, <laughs> what our royalties are. Nobody could answer until the Premier finally said, yes, we're going to get the 25%. we got 17 companies that are ready to pay the 25%, admitting we're only getting 2%. I just I thought that's very relative to our living and future for our children. Yeah, and the one thing I might add to that is those royalty formulas are extremely complex. And so when, when percentages get bandied around, I worry that if we understood all of the assumptions that go into that, it's like marginal tax rates. What tax rate do you, do you spend? Well, is it the average rate or is it the marginal rate? And so it can be a little bit more complex than is sometimes conveyed by uh, the politicians at, at public uh, gatherings. Thanks, Ian, for your talk. Uh, Mary Shillington. Um, I, I have a couple of questions, one from one of our table uh, group uh, who is wondering um, the money, how much of Canadian investment is going outside Canada, uh, if you would know that, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, foreign investments coming into Canada, how much are our, our richer companies and so on investing other places? And the other question or concern I have is um, in, in Western Australia, the, um, the government set uh, expectations about environmental things and, and the whole thing about air quality. And, and I gather that they've been regulating that. I don't feel like we've got much regulation about air quality here in Alberta particularly and control over what the development in Fort McMurray and area is uh, compared to what is happening in Western uh, uh, Australia. My husband lived there for a year and I went up there three times a month. Uh, so I know that uh, you know even people in Fort McMurray area are concerned about that. And I'm wondering what, what the similarities and how come you know, it appears that Australia, Western Australia is doing it, but we're not. So, to your comments on that, thanks. And the, the air quality was the second one, and the first one was... Uh, Canadian investments outside yeah, of Canada. Yeah. I was sharing some, uh, some maps with my students just a couple of weeks ago, looking at, uh, at investment inflows and investment outflows, and um, I don't have, have any numbers at the tip of my tongue, but... What, what struck me was uh, that uh, if we apply the, the one in ten rule of thumb to inflows and outflows in Canada and the United States, I was struck by the fact that the inflows and the outflows were roughly in proportion to those of the United States and roughly, as, 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 clear, as close as I could judge, roughly 10% of what was going on there. So... Um, even amounts coming in and, and going out. Now, might there be some very interesting sectoral contrasts in where Canadians are investing internationally and where foreign investors are investing in Canada? There might well be. Uh, so that, that resource investments might be really out of balance, for example. Uh, the, the issue that, that, that the Gordon Commission raised way back in, uh, in 1957. Uh, Air quality in Canada versus air quality in Australia. They're both big places, uh, and um, uh, air quality in, in some areas is still pretty pristine. Uh, the relative uh, regulatory teeth on, on, on air quality issues in, uh, in Canada and Australia, honestly, that's one of the many things that I don't know about. Um, I, I do know that uh, in, in all my uh, experiences in, in Quinana, uh, immediately inland from, uh, from this complex and uh, in, uh, in Fremantle for a year, uh, I would have to say that we didn't have the same kind of aromas that I become accustomed to in, uh, in Lethbridge, which is largely wafting in from Picture Butte. And... Uh, you know, after a while, we get used to it, don't we? Um, so uh, there's an element of uh, subjectivity in the air, uh, in the air quality uh, issue. Uh, it's, but it's drier here, and I like that. Okay, Pat, you're the last question. Thank you, Ian. I thoroughly enjoyed your talk, even though you didn't talk about beef. <laughs> um, I know you're not a historian, but uh, I'm worried about the future of the countries that depend on resources extraction. Uh, 
that happened in many places. I mean, you know, the country I was born, in Kyushu, Hokkaido, coal disappeared. Mm. We just took them all. Uh, and they somehow survived. Uh, Australia, Canada, economies basically depended on resource extraction. They will deplete eventually. I don't know when. But uh, can you sort of uh, give a prognosis of the future <laughs> of our economy after our natural resources totally taken out? Thanks, Dad. Well, when you look at Canada's trade structure, we look a lot like a developing country. Our, our uh, export uh, profile is heavily uh, influenced by natural resource exports, crude and semi-processed uh, raw materials, and many of those things uh, do deplete uh, or they're destroyed in use like, uh, like hydrocarbons. So that poses a, a real challenge to uh, countries like Canada uh, and Australia, a very similar kind of a profile. Uh, you know, the United States is a little bit, uh, a little bit surprising. Such a highly developed uh, economy that's known for its high technologies, it's known for its service exports. But when you look at the U.S. trade profile, they also are, are pretty reliant on, uh, on exporting uh, crude resource materials. And uh, there was a, a famous Russian, uh, ultimately a Nobel Prize winner, called Vasily Leontiev. And uh, Leontiev was looking at the structure of, of U.S. trade, and, and uh, it, it wasn't conforming to the laws of comparative advantage that said that the U.S. should be exporting its, uh, its manufacturers, its high-technology goods, the things that used intensively the factors of production uh, that it had, like, like skilled labor and, and uh, uh, the high-technology embodied in entrepreneurship. But in fact, the U.S. was exporting an awful lot of raw materials as well. And, and that's known as Leontiev's paradox. And uh, simply, uh, yes, the U.S. has uh, labor and high technology uh, uh, as elements of its comparative advantage, but it also has an incredibly rich resource base. So uh, the world has an appetite for our resources, and we're, we're selling them to them, knowing that they're going to uh, run out someday. I suppose if we're going to end on, a, on an optimistic note, the uh, concept of transmaterialization uh, speaks to the gradual substitution of things uh, that, that do deplete, like copper wire, and its replacement by fiber optic. And uh, the, 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 the Internet is depending on submarine cables. They're not being used with, made of copper anymore. They're being, used of, of, uh, they're being made of, of, of fiber two copper fibers the size of a human hair can carry the amount of information that's carrying great big thick copper uh, cables. So with transmaterialization, uh, technological change promises some opportunities to become less dependent on those depleting resources. Uh, but uh, that's a uh, that's pretty uncertain, kind of like uh, Pascal's wager about, uh, about uh, the existence of God in heaven, right? So um, we, we, can put, we, we can rely on technology, but in the meantime, uh, we ought to give some thought to sustainable methods 
that might reduce our, uh, our uh, dependence on those resource products. And in the case of Canada, we've had an industrial uh, policy to try and enhance our, 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 uh, our strengths in other areas. And that's why WD is about manufacturing, but it's also, at least on paper, about services and about high technology. And we try very hard to augment our, our uh, export um, structure with products that are not so reliant on, on, on resources. So we don't want to become complacent. It is a potential problem, and, and uh, I agree with you. It worries me, too. Join with me in thanking Ian for a wonderful talk to us today. Thank you.